Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Shari, the Director. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Shari, the Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security. His latest book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, is a must-read. It is also uh, the latest of his books. He is a soldier scholar of the First Order. Paul, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. I know that we've been trying to make this session uh, happen for a little bit, and, and I just want to congratulate you in person for writing what I consider to be among the best books on this topic ever written. You, you cover the history of AI, its uses, where we are, where we're going, how we need to think about it societally, and how we th have to think about it militarily from a soldier's, scholar's eye. And it's just some terrific reporting. So congratulations on just the terrific work. Again, right after Army of None, you're following it up with another knockout. Well, thank you. That's very kind. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I had a ton of fun researching it and writing it over the last five years. And I'm very excited to share it with readers and excited to get it out there in people's hands. And obviously, what a tremendous moment with artificial intelligence where I think people can see for themselves how rapidly the technology is advancing, how good it is, and all of these opportunities and risks that come with it. Um, and I hope the, the book is maybe helpful for people to just try to understand that moment that we're in today with AI. Our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. The strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, I, I think what's great about the book is whether, you know, you, you and I have been talking about AI for a very long uh, period of time. I've covered it for a long time. I think that people until ChatGPT you know, it's sort of like a new thing, whereas actually we've been immersed in AI for a long time. What what do you want people to take away from the book? What what are the core things that you want them to understand, given that you actually covered the entire waterfront, but also in a deep way, right? Yeah. Um, well, one of the core ideas in the book is that technology is a key enabler of political, economic, and military power. And we've seen in prior technological revolutions like the industrial revolution, that nations rise and fall on the global stage based on how rapidly they're able to adapt and integrate new technologies. There's clearly a lot of interest in Washington about staying ahead of China and AI. Both China and the United States are global AI powers, and they both have strong advantages. But I think the conclusion that I came to, and in some ways, I think I was surprised by this myself, because of all of the fear in Washington about China and what they're doing, was I actually think the U.S. is in a tremendous place to maintain a leadership position in artificial intelligence. I think the U.S. has advantages that China does not have, especially in hardware and in human talent. And if the U.S. can find ways to capitalize on those leadership positions, I think the U.S. is in a great position to stay ahead of China and maintain its position as the global leader in AI. Talk about power, and I want to talk a little bit about 
all of the things that have to happen, right? I mean, there's a very robust debate. There are some who want to eject all Chinese students from the United States, whereas Eric Schmidt, Dr. Schmidt, Eric Schmidt, uh, formerly of Google uh, and the co-chair of uh, the National AI uh, Commission, you know, sort of makes it clear that, hey, look, if we do that, that's a big strategic mistake. But, but first, let me ask you about power, right? How do we, uh, Tom Siebel of C3AI is one of our regular guests, and he was talking about, look, this is like printing press. The, the, people aren't fully appreciating the magnitude of this. How do we need, what's the right way we need to think about AI? Because it's going to be game-changing societally, politically, economically, industrially, militarily, right? It's one of these things that will change a lot about almost everything. It'll create new jobs. It'll cause a lot of people to lose their jobs. How do we, Paul, need to be thinking of this from a strategic standpoint? And are we structured right to be able to, to navigate this in a competitive environment with other countries that are sort of getting their act together, like China? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And, you know, I think five years ago, the bullish case on AI was that AI was like another industrial revolution. That's how I largely talk about it in the book. Um, you know, and and depending on, I guess, how people are counting, people might talk about AI as the fourth industrial revolution or something else. But that's one way of doing it. Frankly, today, that's kind of the conservative view because I think that kind of level of changes is already baked in with the types of AI technology that we've already seen invented. And then it's just a question of them being deployed out in society and being integrated. And that is big sweeping changes. Obviously, recently, there's a lot of people that are concerned about future progress in AI and not just where we are today, but what could be coming in the years ahead. And then it's, it's you know, kind of all bets are off, depending on what people are envisioning. Maybe it's as big as, you know, the invention of fire or, you know, the invention of a new species of intelligence. I mean, who, who knows, right? But right. in the near term, I think we can, I, I think we can actually confidently say that AI is likely to, in combination with other digital technologies, networking um, and data storage, for example, that we are likely to see changes in societies and in global power over the next several decades that are on par with the changes that we saw during the Industrial Revolution when nations rose and fell on the global stage based on how rapidly they industrialized. And I think the key insight for power is the Industrial Revolution changed the key metrics of power. That it now coal and steel production became key inputs of national power. Oil became a geostrategic resource that countries were willing to fight wars over. And so, you know, for a couple of years ago, there was this big kind of like craze of like data is the new oil. And then right after that, there were a bunch of people, well, data is not the new oil. I mean, data is not oil, um, it's an analogy. And there are some ways in which it's helpful and some ways which is not. But this idea of what's the new oil is actually like not a bad way to think about these, these kinds of shifts where technology could shift the fundamental underpinnings of power in some really significant way where industrial technology doesn't go away any more than, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution um, you know, meant that we didn't need agriculture, for example, although it changes how um, people conduct agriculture now using farm machinery and, and, um, and factories. And AI could very similarly change these underpinnings of national power 
And so the book is organized around these four battlegrounds that I talk about of data, computing hardware, human talent, and institutions, the organizations that are needed to take these inputs and turn them into useful AI applications. And these four areas being the key battlegrounds of global competition in AI, that whoever has a leadership position in data, hardware, talent, and institutions will be the global leader in AI. Uh, Palantir CEO Alex Karp uh, is fond of saying, uh, right, uh, that in the AI race, you're either going to stay ahead or see the lead. Like, that's the only question. Um, and, and the other thing that he points out uh, is, you know, the issue isn't um, the most important element of this race isn't large language models, for example, like ChatGPT, but, but it's actually uh, AI powered technologies uh, on the battlefield. The question I have for you, um, Paul, is, in, on each of these four battlefields, right? There is some evidence, for example, the Chinese might be ahead of us in quantum. Uh, then again, I think we have a lot of quantum capability that we don't talk about. Uh, there are uh, questions of immigration. Uh, as Dr. Schmidt has said, there are a lot of Chinese uh, students and, and academics that are in the United States doing great work that we're benefiting from. And in fact, they wanna be here and they wanna stay here. Uh, there are those who wanna eject them from the United States as security risks uh, in a blanket way. How do we win these four battles, because winning these four battles means getting a lot of things right, like immigration policy, like national investment, like thoughtful regulation. How do we win these four battles? Well, it's a great question, because um, I started by saying that I do think the U.S. is in a strong position to maintain a global leadership position in AI, that the U.S. has fundamental strengths that China actually doesn't have, but we have to capitalize on those strengths. And so it does it does matter what we do. Um, you know, I, Maybe I'll give you the bottom line on each of these four areas very quickly and happy to dive deep into them if, if you want. You know, on data, I think that, that China's alleged data advantage is overstated. Sometimes this will be described, well, China has a data advantage because of its greater population and its um, government surveillance. I, I think for reasons we can get into, I just think that actually doesn't add up to a data meaningful data advantage for China um, for a number of reasons. Data, I think, is in many ways a pretty even competition. But in hardware, the U.S. has huge advantages in hardware because um, all of the manufacturing equipment for the most advanced chips is made by only three countries in the world, the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands. They control 90% of the global market for semiconductor manufacturing equipment, including the most advanced chip making equipment. That's allowed the U.S. to put in place export controls on chips going to China, for example. So the U.S. has huge advantages in hardware. But we need to find a ways to sustain those advantages by reinvesting at home, to be smart and calibrated about export controls, and to work closely with our allies so we're not acting alone. In talent, the US also has a tremendous opportunity to maintain a leadership position in talent because while China produces more top AI scientists than anyone else in the world, they actually don't stay in China, they come to the United States. Right. And they stay here in the United States. So over 90% of Chinese PhD students who do a PhD in the United States in computer science, they stay in the U.S. after graduation. The U.S. is uh, basically uh, stealing China's best and brightest. That's a huge competitive advantage. And frankly, the U.S. is a draw for global talent from around the entire world. And that's an advantage that China simply cannot compete with. The best AI scientists in the world want to come to the United States. They don't want to go to China. 
even Chinese scientists. But that's a place where, you know, as you talked about, we need to make sure that we're keeping the door open for high-skilled immigration, because if we're making it harder for people to come here, that's really hurting us tremendously. Um, and on institutions, I talk about institutions as the organizations that we use to take these raw inputs and translate them into useful applications. And this comes out really striking fashion throughout military history. If you just look at airplanes, for example, airplanes were invented here in the United States. By the time you get to World War II, that gives the US no meaningful advantage in aircraft technology. All of the great powers have aircraft technology. The question is, what do you do with an airplane? How do you use airplanes effectively? And it's the ability of military organizations to innovate effectively with aircraft that really matters the most. And that's a place where I honestly think it's, it's again, kind of a dead even heat here between the U.S. and China. Both militaries are working to spin in this technology from the commercial sector and rapidly adapt it for military applications. And it's a, a much more even competition than we would like it to be. And the Defense Department's going to have to find ways to move faster on AI and innovate faster to stay ahead of the Chinese military. I, I want to get uh, to um, uh, both uh, on, on the military side, adoption and regulation and all of that. But I, I want to quickly ask you about um, both the advantage, right? I mean, the advantages and the perils of this, right? I mean, there, you know, in, in the in the book you cover, uh, for example, what, what um, AI, the the damage AI can uh, wreak uh, with you know, disinformation, fake news, the propagation of it, um, the problematic nature of the kind of electronic avatars, right? That it will have Paul's, you know, inflection, but the voice will be different, right? right. What, what did right. you say? YouTube yeah. could sound like exactly like Barack Obama if you got the inflection right, because the technology will make his, your voice sound like his, uh, which which is problematic. Um, you know, you talk about deep fake videos. Uh, on the other hand, you also talk about harnessing the technology to be able to um, help you detect fake news, disinformation and the like. What's what's the yin and yang at a time when people look at the technology with increasing, unfortunately, fear, right? We, the, the industry itself hasn't done a good PR job of, of it. You know what I mean? In fact, the industry, I would argue, has done a bad PR job by raising fears and the importance of regulation. I, I, you know, what are what's the yin and the yang here of both the threat and the advantage so that folks are thinking about this the right way, as opposed to sort of Luddites trying to break the machine? Yeah, I mean, look, there are a lot of tremendous opportunities for AI across society, where in medicine and transportation and finance and increasing productivity and scientific discovery, AI can have lots of advantages. Um, that's not what the book is about. The book is about the darker side of AI. It's about the scary, I mean, I work in the national security world, right? That's what we worry about. We worry about the scary bad things that people might do cause harm. And that's what the book's about with AI. So talks about military applications. The book dives deep into the very dystopian surveillance state that China is building internally and using AI for repression. And it talks about disinformation. And I think, you know, people have a probably but now have a fairly you know intuitive sense of deep fakes and people have seen AI generated images. They've just proliferated very rapidly um, since we've seen, you know, some of these AI image generators in the last, uh, you know, year or two. What's Interesting. So to, to better understand, like, where is this going with AI generated media? I didn't deep dive into audio because audio is ahead of where video is. 
Right. And audio is good enough now that it's basically indistinguishable from human. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is you on the other line, but you know, AI generated voice is good enough that it could be anybody. Uh, there's lots of recordings of, of you talking. And so you know, the idea of taking recordings and putting them to an AI system and then generating a synthetic voice, 100% doable with the technology. Um, one of the things that I demoed was a voice skin. This like was wild to me. So it was... Absolutely. Yeah, it was basically like a synthetic voice that's in real time translates your voice. So rather than like record, you know, make a recording and then the AI generates a new voice for the recording, this was real time and you talk into a microphone and then the AI translates that into somebody else's voice and it played it back into my own ear. And the, the um, if you do it fast enough, if it's under like a certain threshold in terms of milliseconds, your brain registers it as identical as like simultaneous because right. it's faster than your brain can process it. And so in when I did it, my I could hear my own voice as I was speaking it with, from my standpoint, no delay, but in someone else's voice. It was so wild. And they could just, with a flip of a button, change it to a woman's voice or um, they, they plugged it into an audiobook narrator. So you get the, you know, this right. this is the narrator, you know, kind of voice. <laughs> and it was, it was really fascinating um, to see this technology. And then had you know great conversation with that company and other experts about okay how do you deal with this problem, and there are technical tools, um, watermarking where people embed synthetic watermarks into digital media that can allow you to detect what was generated by AI. There are some detection tools to detect whether something was AI generated or real. Um, metadata becomes increasingly important, and things like chain of custody for. Um, you know, real videos and, and audio and images to show their provenance and, and where they came from. At a technical level, it, it is a solvable problem. We really would need to build, I mean, we do need to build a, a new ecosystem around media to verify the authenticity of real media and to catch fake media. So I think it's it's solvable, but it does require a societal effort to then put in place these measures, if we sort of sit back and do nothing, then, yeah, I mean, I think we could end up in a place where there's a lot of AI-generated content that is fraudulent or spammy or manipulative um, that floods the zone of the internet and our phones, just like, you know, how many, how many spam calls do we get a day right on your phone? And that kind of um, sort of using AI and automation, sort of jamming these channels of communication and disrupting people's understanding of the world is a definite risk in the years ahead. Well, and by the way, I just want to point out, Steve Marvel does a terrific job uh, narrating your book uh, on Audible. So I should just point, point that out. Uh, He's great. Quintessential He's great. narrator voice. He is, he, great. He, he is great. He is great. Um, yeah. And so he, was, he was, um, I had a, you know, it's funny. I mean, this is kind of a funny aside, but after Army of None, um, came out, I got feedback from readers about like the military acronyms, right? Because there's, a, you know, there's a certain way of pronouncing, you know, right. like an AMRAM or something, right? And so um, uh, Steve Marvel was wonderful. And um, we connected, you know, he reached out to me, connected before he did the recording to talk through all of these acronyms. So uh, for those who are worried, the audiobook should be in solid shape, um, get the acronyms right. And, uh, and yeah, he's a wonderful narrator. 
So let's go to the dark side of this and the, and the threat of this, right? Um, the challenge and the concern, and when you joined us a couple of months ago, you know, you talked about um, how effectively the export controls we were putting on chips and chip making technology was actually a way to control Chinese AI, was, was a way to look at it. Like each one of the things that we're doing um, or a way to try to shape this long-term landscape. How do we need to be thinking militarily about the opportunities? There is a lot of automation in weaponry. There's a lot of automation in queuing. None of this is new. Uh, weapon systems have been doing this for a very long period of time. People are involved in the loop. But in some cases, there's a lot of automaticity in some of these systems, right? And and sometimes it's it's sort of like how many fairies are dancing on the head of a pin, right? I mean, at some point, these things by nature will have to be automated where there is a person in the loop, but a lot of other things will be decided, especially in a highly kinetic environment. How do we need to be thinking about this, especially given how our adversaries are gonna be thinking about it, which may be with a hell of a lot less restraint. I mean, right, we, we saw Russia recently brought up a dam in Ukraine, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I'm often in conversations where our few people say, you know, we need, we need to get the policy right. We need to get the policy right. And, you know, that was true 14 years ago um, when the Pentagon first started to really grapple with some of these questions. I think at this point in time, we have a lot of policies in place. In fact, the Defense Department has been really forward leaning on policies, whether it's the DOD's Directive on Autonomy and Weapons, which is over a decade old now. They just published an update recently. The DOD AI ethics principles, the DIU responsible AI guidelines, the DOD's responsible AI strategy that came out last year. There's a tremendous amount of policy and guidance there. What we need to do is implementation. We need to work on building the things. So, you know, we don't need this sort of, I think the policies are important, but we actually have that intellectual framework in place it's now about, okay, how do we assemble those data sets that we need to train machine learning systems, get them cleaned up and ready to train algorithms. Let's train them, let's test them. Um, there are places where we do need some organizational innovation. I think we're gonna need organizational innovation on like in many other areas on the contracting side so we can move faster, work with small companies and, and startups and bring in commercial tech. Um, there are some infrastructure challenges inside DoD on the data and computing side, building, for example, like the cloud computing infrastructure that we're going to need. Um, I think there's definitely a literacy issue inside DoD of just like people understanding what can AI do and how do I use it? And the people have caught the bug. People are excited about AI. That's that's not the problem. The, the problem is like sort of calibrating people's understanding so that they have a clear sense of like, oh, this is a problem that AI can solve now. And this is a problem that is not appropriate. Um, and it's funny, I was talking to one startup, the startup Heron Systems, that won DARPA's alpha dogfight challenge. Still creating an AI agent to beat a human in dogfighting, which spoiler, totally crushed the human, <laughs> crushed, crushed the person. Um, in a simulator, caveat is in a simulator, but, um, but now DARPA started to transition to real world aircraft. Uh, they flew on an F-16 in late 2022. And I was talking to this, this um, the head of the company who was saying, you know, at first people didn't understand what AI was and what they could do with it. And then there's been a shift in the last couple of years. And now their minds are going full Star Trek. And people are like asking for things that you're like, actually, we, we can't do that. Um, 
So that's something that's, I think, really critical and important just to get to, you know, how do we start using this stuff and, and put it out there and start building up a under, better understanding about what it can do, what it can't do. Uh, it's not magic, what the limitations are and how we can use the technology effectively. Are there any uh, boundaries that we need to be aware of or? Yeah, I've seen, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I think certainly there are hard boundaries like ensuring that any use is compliant with the law of war. I think there are probably also places that are that are softer boundaries in the sense that they're they're more vague and not as well-defined, but they're still there um, in terms of things like ethics and particularly military professional ethics, which doesn't come up a lot in this context, but this idea that, you know, really the essence of the military profession is making decisions about the use of force. And that's what, that's what distinguishes a military professional from someone else. And I think military professionals inherently get this when they think about automation, they get the idea that, look, if I push this button and launch this missile, I own that missile and I own what happens to it. And I'm responsible for it. I don't think we want to give that up. And that's, that's a, what I would think of as maybe as a soft boundary of how do we ensure that even as we're finding ways to use the technology, we're doing so in ways that are consistent with how we think about human involvement in decisions about the use of force. Um, but I think the, the, the Defense Department has actually a really robust institutional framework in place, um, whether it's through the responsible AI strategy or the AI ethics principles or for autonomous weapons through the um, DOD's directive on autonomy and weapons that has like an internal rigorous review process to look at weapons and say, okay, um, you know, is this ready to be deployed? Is it been designed in a way that's trustworthy and reliable and is going to, you know, the humans using it are going to understand effectively what it's going to do. Um, and so I think that we're actually in a great place to have those systems in place to ensure that we are able to use the technology in ways that we're going to be comfortable with. Um, is there a, I've asked you this question before, but I'll ask it again, because now you're at the, the backside of this book. Is there an international convention? Is there a Geneva convention approach that can work for this to set up some global war fighting standards? Or is this going to be a, a case as some people accuse us that, you know, we'll be, we'll be the ones who will be following the rules and our adversaries will be, you know, will take advantage of us because we will be rules-based and they won't be. Ergo, making a case that we should be equally unruled, I suppose. Yeah, you know, it comes up a lot. And I, I just, I find it to be a strange argument. Um, and I'll tell you why, because, you know, look at what's unfolding in Ukraine. Russia is committing terrible atrocities. Russian forces are murdering civilians. They're raping people. They're you know, bombing civilian targets. Russia is not constrained by the law of war. Are we suggesting that we should do those things? I don't actually think that's what people are saying. I don't think we right. should do those things when we fight wars. So like, just because our adversaries are doing something terrible doesn't mean that we should do it. If it's not consistent with our values, then we shouldn't do it. And so it's just like a weird, like the idea that somehow your values are constraining to you seems like a strange way to think about them. Your actions should be an extension of your values. Um, right. You know, so it's like, I don't really buy that, I guess. Um, well, it's, it's as bad as the torture argument, right? And we know that it doesn't work, yet people do it 
And the late Senator McCain was absolutely right. The United States should not be doing it coming from a voice of somebody who was tortured during his six and a half years in captivity, right? Right. And, you know, on the international agreement front, the U.S. is actually pushing for an international agreement surrounding the use of AI and autonomy in the military. Now, the U.S. doesn't want a legally binding instrument and it doesn't want a ban on autonomous weapons, but the State Department released earlier this year a political declaration on the use of AI and autonomy in the military. It had a number of key points of principles that the U.S. agrees are important. And the U.S. is working with other countries to try to get other countries to come on board to a sort of common political declaration or agreement that would share some of these principles. So, I mean, actually, we're working towards it. Um, now, again, the U.S. what the U.S. wants is different than, say, what others want. The U.S. doesn't want a treaty that would ban autonomous weapons. But the idea of some agreement is right now actually official U.S. policy. Uh, let me uh, take you to uh, the, the question of what smart regulation looks like. Um, Paul, what does smart regulation look like? Because there's a sense, right, that the bigs want control because, you know, but they want regulation because they don't want to engage in an arms race. There was uh, some great writing on that, um, right? What, what does smart regulation of this look like? Because if this is another industrial age, you don't want to be standing in the way of that happening, right? You want to make sure you get all the benefits of it. And again, Tom Siebel, you know, did also just like you said, right? I mean, it is another industrial revolution. It's, it's that class of technology. How do we do this right at a time you know, where there's discussion of disclosing of algorithms, which I'm not, I don't know how much that helped, right? I mean, what's what's the right way to do this? Yeah, of AI in general. Um, yeah, you yeah. know- there's... Without stifling innovation, right? You want to make sure that you're getting the benefits of that innovation. That's right. And I think that's a genuine concern. I mean, I think we can see that the European Union tends to lean into regulation um, in ways that, you know, are arguably harmful to the tech ecosystem inside Europe. It's also worth looking at the flip side, which is, look, I mean, the only reason why we have clean air and water and safe food to eat and safe drugs that you can take and safe, you know, um, airplanes to travel in is because of government regulation of all of these industries. And so, um, you know, you don't want to be over constraining into innovation, but there are places where regulation makes sense. Um, you know, I imagine a world where like, you know, airlines weren't regulated and airplanes crashed all the time. People wouldn't want to fly in planes and that would actually be damaging to the airline industry. So, um, you know, the question I think you started with is what does smart regulation look like? I think in AI, it looks like a couple of different things. One is that there's going to be sector specific regulation on AI applications. And um, that's going to be true in medicine and finance and transportation, and it's true in the military space. And those are going to look like different kinds of regulations because those industries already have robust regulatory frameworks that AI is being introduced to and certain ways of thinking about um, balancing competing interests, whether it's, you know, um, privacy and in a healthcare setting, right? Patient privacy or safety for automobiles, for example. And so I think you see that unfolding in the military space as well. And, and, you know, the U.S., for example, I think actually being really forward leaning in terms of trying to establish what some of those principles might be. The question that's new and that's 
been raised recently and kind of interesting is should there be some regulation on the technology itself for the most powerful AI systems? And this is something that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, raised um, recently in a Senate hearing. And this idea that for only the most capable systems, not the AI voice translator, not the AI that's going to be in a self-driving car or doing image classification or in your Amazon Alexa, but for things like GPT-4, which is right now the most advanced AI system, the successor to ChatGPT, and things beyond GPT-4, um, should there be some regulatory structure in place? He's talked about a licensing regime where companies that are training the most capable systems would have to go through some kind of licensing process um, and you know, independent audits, um, red teaming of the safety of their systems before they can be deployed. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and there's a lot of skepticism um, you know, I think you, you mentioned it you know, earlier, there's a lot of skepticism of these companies. Are they just trying to create a regulatory moat around what they're doing and, and lock out competitors? Um, it's good to be skeptical, right? Of what are their incentives? Um, but I think when you just look at the risks of the technology, the most capable systems like ChatGPT and GPT-4 are actually fundamentally different than what we've seen out of the AI revolution over the last decade. So something like AlphaGo could just play Go. That's all it could do. It couldn't write a poem or write computer software, conduct scientific experiments. These new large language models can do all of those things and many more. And so they're inherently dual use. They can be used for good things or for harm. Uh, they can be used to write code and they can be used for offensive cyber operations. They can be used for scientific experiments and GPT-4 has been demonstrated to have the ability to synthesize chemical weapons. And like that is a concern. I mean, right now, there's no good way to make these things like robust against attempts to use them to cause harm um, and to make them reliably safe. So that's a place where, hey, actually, for these really most capable systems, I do think some kind of um, regulation that's specific to the most advanced systems probably does make sense. You you have uh, right uh, you you uh, detail and show in the book sort of how the capability has evolved right and the exponential nature at each one of these iteration of large language models and and you know the the model itself is learning um, I, I think you point out right it's a little overwrought that the weapons are going to like exterminate the world right I mean that is a little much but how do where is the technology going to be in say 10 years, five to 10 years, because during the industrial revolution, there was global upheav social upheaval. Um, and each time something like this happens, there's upheaval and governments tend not to be very good to, at dealing with that, right? We, we, the free market will sort it out. There'll be some regulatory. How, how do we need to think about, you know, A, where the technology is going to be militarily and societally? And then what are the things that we need to do not to be making the mistakes in the wake of the industrial revolution, right? I mean, if, if it's going to unemploy a whole lot of people, perhaps pretty quickly, how do you, how do governments need to think about, um, right? Because it's a security challenge in and of its own, right? People talk about China as an existential threat. Us destroying ourselves is actually a bigger and more likely threat than China destroying, right? Like China doesn't care what we do as long as we stay out of their nose. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And that's the thing that's a little scary is this paradigm shift that's happened in the last year or 18 months or so towards these more general purpose systems is really fundamental. And it begins to unlock a lot of new possibilities, good ones and and bad ones. And I think that's what's creating a lot of the uncertainty and fear and hype um, surrounding AI, because it's, it's just not clear how far that goes. So one of the things that I kind of talk about at the end of the book, which I think holds up like extremely well based on the moment we're in now, is this scaling towards larger and larger models. And we've seen over the last couple of years, um, a handful of companies, kind of the frontier AI labs, DeepMind, OpenAI, a new startup called Anthropic, throwing millions and millions of dollars and building ever larger models that um, have hundreds of billions of connections in the neural network, throwing massive amounts of training data at them, um, hundreds of gigabytes of data. ChatGPT is trained on a good chunk of the internet and using massive amounts of computing power to train these models, thousands of very specialized chips running for weeks or months at a time to train this AI model on this training data. And one of the like sort of really wild phenomena is that if you just scale up the amount of data and hardware and the size of the model, that alone leads to improvements in performance. Even if it's basically the same algorithm, it's you're just increasing the size um, of the pile of data and, and the amount of hardware and the size of the model. That actually leads to huge gains in performance. And that's uh, quite remarkable because nobody knows like really where that goes. So if you were to take GPT-4 now, the most capable system on the market, and you were to train a model that's 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times bigger and with more data and computing hardware, what is it capable of? Like, literally no one knows the answer to that question. And one of the things that we've seen in the last couple of years is you can get these like surprising jumps in capability. Um, There's a number of different papers that have come out where you can see this where you know, at, at a certain size model, it's just like not able to do some task performing, you know, arithmetic or, or solving some language problem. And then you cross some hidden threshold that we can't see in advance. And all of a sudden, bang, it can do it. And it's quite good. And like, there's no reason to think that human performance is a, is a it's kind of a benchmark that we tend to look at, but it's not a ceiling, right? If we look at chess and go, the best chess and Go AI systems are way, way better than humans. And so there's like, sometimes there's this, there's this phenomenon. We saw this a couple of years ago with Go where they're not any good. They're not any good. They're not any good. People are like this, it's never going to be better than people. And then it's all of a sudden as good as people. And then it's all of a sudden it's better than people. And then it's way better than people. And that transition happens very, very fast. Um, and we've definitely seen that for lots of specific applications like, chess and go and poker and um you know image classification and then now with these more general purpose systems there is i think a lot of questions about what might be in the future if you look at open ai um you go to their website for gpt4 they publish their technical paper on it and they show the performance of the previous version at a whole bunch of different cognitive tests so giving it things like the SAT or the GRE or the bar exam or other types of, you know, AP calculus. And then they compare that to GPT-4. And 
there are some places where it's a small improvement, but there are some places where it goes overnight from can't do it at all to basically doing it like as good as people. Um, right. GPT-4 has human level performance on the SAT, the GRE, and the bar exam. So it can't do everything that humans can do, uh, but it can do a lot of things. And there's good reason to think that the next generation system is probably not that far off if companies keep scaling up, could do an increasingly large set of things that humans could do. Um, what's fascinating is the physical world turns out to still be like super hard. So robots are just like clumsy and not very good. Um, but it's unclear what that looks like in the future. It's possible that people are able, they're already working on taking these large language models, linking them to vision processing systems as you do this as a way to sort of bootstrap robots abilities. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a, there's a lot of unknown and get some people excited and some people scared and we just don't know. Um, let me let me ask you one last thing, which is um, defense and speed of adoption. We had uh, former Defense Secretary Esper and former Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James uh, on uh, recently, and we you know we we talked about the, what the work that they're doing with the Atlantic Council to do you know faster adoption. That the department has to get better at it. How much of this? Uh, AI revolution on the military side is going to be led by military contractors, or is this actually going to be a revolution that's led by private industry? And then if it is being led by commercial industry, uh, not private industry, commercial industry, then what are the things the department has to do across the enterprise? Because Heather Penny had it right, right, of the Mitchell Institute, there's a ten tendency of thinking about it as pixie dust, you know, you just sprinkle a little AI on it and it solves the problem. But that's not the case, you need to change how you train, how you educate, how people are going to be using these systems, um, right? And, and to use them very differently perhaps than you were using uh, current generations of systems. Talk to us about the defense industrial side of it, but also then how the enterprise itself is gonna to have to change in order to be able to harness these innovation cycles at the speed of relevance, as opposed to, you know, wow, five years after the fact, you guys are coming around to adopting this awesome. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of work to be done um, in the defense department and, and sort of the broader defense ecosystem. Certainly one challenge is that these AI innovations are coming out of the commercial sector. And so the DOD has to spin them in to the defense sector. In some ways, AI is like the opposite of, of stealth technology that came out of secret defense labs and doesn't have really civilian applications. This is very ubiquitous. And, you know... It's a very level playing field for um, actors globally, whether other nation states and, and non-state actors. That's not good for the DOD. We don't have big advantages here. And so we've got to find ways to adapt the technology, bring it in, move faster. But I actually think the problems the DOD has are more fundamental, which is I think at a, at a conceptual level, people in the military, including the most senior leaders, still talk about military power in these very industrial age metrics, where you know it's 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 not just that our acquisition system is slow and you can't buy software the way you buy an aircraft carrier. I mean that's true, um, but it's even deeper than that, which is that like when you ask the Navy, what do you need? They talk about the number of ships. The Air Force talks about the number of aircraft. Those are industrial age metrics, right? It's not just that we're stuck in a platform mindset. We're stuck in this sort of pre-digital mindset about military power, the army is even worse, right? They talk about number of people, which is like a pre-industrial metric for thinking about military power. And 
we know in practice, when you look at a platform, that what matters more than the number of ships or aircraft that you have is what's on that ship or that aircraft, right? What are the radars and the sensors and the missiles and what can they do? And is it, are they networked with other systems? I can truly understand that. Um, and I'm not saying quantity doesn't matter. Quantity does matter, but we need to change our metrics for thinking about military power. And that's a paradigm shift that I think we haven't yet undergone. And until we do that, I think we're really going to struggle in a deep way to make sure that we're making smart investments in the right area to make sure that we're delivering effective combat power, which that's what matters at the end. You know, if you want to talk about, um, you know, any given scenario, whether it's a you know, conflict with Russia or China, you know, you want to stop a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, you know, the number of ships and aircraft and people, that stuff's all, those are sort of like um, interim things to think about. What we really care about is like, can we prevail in this conflict? Do we have combat power out on the battlefield that's going to help us achieve a political objective? And I think our metrics for power are going to have to change to get there. Just, just last thing. I mean, are, are there things the department should be doing now to make sure that it, it gets on a better track, right? Because as you said, and you know, I should have gotten to that in my first question, right, about how to think about power. We do have a tendency of thinking about it as, as about firepower at the end of the day, as opposed to all of these other things that actually could augment or totally change how you use that firepower, right? We didn't even fully talk about how quantum computing gets involved in this and the step change that happens then in the wake of that. From your standpoint, what are the couple of things the department should be doing right now? On AI or sort of broadly? Uh, whichever way you want to take it, but just generally on AI, how do how do we need to be preparing for this industrial scale revolution if we're still, you know, in many respects talking about numbers of things as opposed to how the game potentially changes in a fundamental way? Yeah, I mean, I think we've just got to get underway with like real AI applications in the department, um, putting in place the infrastructure in terms of data and computing hardware and getting you know, cloud computing resources, for example, getting companies on contract. The contracting problems are a big one and we need to find ways to cut through some of this red tape so we can move faster and just start delivering. And I think once we start getting AI applications in the hands of warfighters, then we're gonna to start to kick off this cycle of innovation. People can come back and they can say, you know, this was good, but what if I had this? And talking to engineers who could say, okay, we're going to go back and change it and update it. And that's where we want to be. And we're not there yet. And we need to start accelerating that process. Paul, thanks so much again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great discussion.